it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. UFO IP. professional group of highly educated UFO slash paranormal field investigators. Night Dreams website at www.nightdreamstalkradio.com. Hey, this is Gary from Night Dreams Talk Radio. I want to welcome a new sponsor to our show, PhoenixShaving.com. I know what you're thinking, right? Oh, another disposable razor company. Well, the fact is, they're not. You remember the razors that your father and his father shaved with? Did you ever notice they didn't have, well, the embarrassing razor burn or ingrowing hairs or the razor bumps after they shaved? 
Did you notice they were also relaxed after they were done shaving? Well, the problem is these big corporations want to sell you razor after razor after razor. Think about how much money you spend a year on razors. Or do you use electric razor? <laughs> then you're going to find out what razor burn is. So you need to check out Phoenix Shaving Starter Kits. They come complete with the soap, the brush, and a two and a half month supply of blades. And the most important part of it, an all metal razor built to last generations. So, hey, you can donate it to one of your sons when they turn 18. Check out phoenixshaving.com and tell them that Gary from Night Dream said, hey, I want one. That's phoenixshaving.com now. And you're listening to me, Gary, on Night Dreams Talk Radio. Hey, tonight, we got a special guest. And are you there tonight, special guest? I certainly am. Ready to go. Okay. How you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. Okay. Well, why don't you tell everybody what you do? I write about UFOs. I just had my first book published uh, last year, The Close Encounters Man. It's a biography of... Uh, everybody's favorite UFO dad, Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Oh, wow. So what actually got you, uh, you know, to get into actually writing a book about, well, about UFOs? Oh, I like how you just jump in with the big, big question first. I'm sorry. First I can all, ask you I, another question. How long have you been married? <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. I, sh- I actually, I should mention, my name is Mark O'Connell, um, I've been uh, I've been a UFO buff all my life. I mean, ever since I was a little kid, I can I can still remember what I what I think is my first conscious memory was when this uh, this science fiction show premiered on TV back in the early 1960s. It was called The Outer Limits, um, and it had it was a it was basically a monster of the week show. It was a science fiction anthology series, and I can remember. For some weird reason, my mom had that show tuned in for the premiere episode, and I would have been about three years old, I think, and this uh, scary glowing alien monster appeared on screen, on our TV screen, and I ran upstairs and I hid, and I wouldn't come out until my mom could assure me that the monster had gone. So that's that's uh, that's how it started, and then I just became um, more and more interested in anything to do with... Uh, aliens and ufos and and rocket ships and space travel and science fiction um i used to have this i used to have this recurring dream when i was a kid and 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 i've since found that a lot of other people interested in ufos have had a similar dream in their in their childhoods but i used to have this dream where i'd be standing out on the back our back porch steps at the family home um looking up in the sky, and the sky was just filled with invading spaceships. And they were all heading towards me. And I never knew in this dream if they were coming just for me or if they were coming just to attack everyone. But I knew it was an alien attack. I had that dream over and over again when I was, when I was a little kid. Oh, wow. Um, and, then, uh, and then a little later on, see, you, you asked where this came from, and I said, this is a big question, so I'm giving you the long answer. Oh, please do. So, uh, okay. 
Um, my mom was also uh, a volunteer librarian at our town library, and she would take me in with her sometimes. And it was a small library, but they had one section of the library that was devoted to uh, paranormal stuff, you know. So there was um, there was uh, Frank Edwards' UFOs, Serious Business, and there was, you know, Eric Van Daniken's uh, Chariots of the Gods, and, you know, all the, the Bermuda Triangle books and the Bigfoot books and, of course, the UFO books. And I just always headed straight for that bookshelf whenever my mom took me into the library with her. And um, would just read those books from cover to cover. And, you know, there probably weren't that many books, and I probably read each one of them five or six times. But I was just completely hooked. I was completely fascinated with this kind of stuff. Uh, just really fired my imagination. And um, that's, so that's kind of how it all took root, you know. And all these things happening when I was, you know, really pretty, pretty young. It was a really early interest, and it never faded away. You know, it's only grown stronger over the years. Um, and so how I came to write the book was uh, about six years ago or so, I just, just for fun, I started writing a, a blog about UFOs called High Strangeness. You can find it at highstrangenessufo.com. And was just having fun, just sort of writing about kind of the weirder, offbeat um, aspects of the UFO phenomenon. And, um, you know, when you write a blog, I'm sure it's exactly the same as doing a radio show. You constantly need new material, right? So um, I was always online just searching for interesting UFO topics to write about. And I came across... uh, came across a website for KUFOS, the Center for UFO Studies. This was a, a UFO study foundation in Chicago that had been founded um, back in the 1980s by Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who had been you know, pretty famous for being the Air Force's UFO consultant on Project Blue Book. Well, I, I was living part-time in Chicago at the time and thought, holy cow, this, this uh, foundation is literally like five miles from where I live. So I contacted the the director, Dr. Mark Rodiger, and just kind of started pestering him um, for an invitation to come and come and check out the Kufos files. And eventually, he invited me to come in and look. And it's just a, honestly, it, it's a it was a little disappointing. It's just a whole room room full of uh, bookshelves and beat up old filing cabinets in in uh, Mark's basement. But it's got all these old files from Dr. Heineck's UFO work. And I was just fascinated by everything I found in his basement. And, and uh, after a couple of visits, Mark just mentioned, he said, you know, I've read your blog and I like your writing. And he said, you know, we've always kind of been looking for someone to write the definitive story of Dr. Heineck's career. And I wonder if you'd be interested. And I, you know, I was, of course, you know, I didn't hesitate for a second. Of course I'm interested. That sounds like a dream job. And it, it just so happened that I, you know, I didn't have any major writing projects going on at the time, and this seemed like a perfect thing to dedicate my uh, energy to, and so I decided to do it, and that's how it all got started. Wow. That, <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you know, going back how you mentioned that one TV show kind of like got it all going for you. You know, remember the old TV show uh, V? I love that show. Yeah, that's what kind of got me into it. I, I I watched that, and you know, I was so disappointed when that show got canceled. You know, yeah, me too, me too. 
But you know how many people it actually even affected people because, you know, it's got people thinking, well, maybe we have, well, aliens walking among us, you know, after that show came out. Yeah. And they remade that show just a couple of years ago. I mean, that's how popular it was. Oh, yeah. Anything right now, you know, to do with like UFOs, it, it is hot. You know, uh, it goes in cycles, you know, like uh, ghost hunting and the you know, which that's still popular, but not like it was. And, you know, it for me on my show, it just went funny. A couple months ago, after I had Peter Davenport on, I started getting all these people, you know, emailing for the show saying, hey, get more people in about UFOs. So that that's what I'm doing. Well, thank you for doing that. I'm, and I'm glad to be uh, benefiting from that. Well, uh, can you give us a little bit about the book and, you know, the, you know, sure, I've given a sure. lot away. I mean, hopefully you're um, not like I was telling you about before we came on there. Like when I had one guest on, uh, he wanted to talk about his book and then I got him on there and he would absolutely refused to talk about his book. And that, that was a very interesting night. I had to talk about the walking dead, uh, vampires, you know, zombies for two hours Boy, I had to use my brain to think about every one of those movies I watched a hundred times each. <laughs> well, I'm not so much into zombies, although I did. I have to say, I did see a really cool zombie movie just a couple nights ago that I can totally recommend. It's on Netflix. It's called Cargo, and uh, it stars Martin Freeman. Um, and it's it's kind of a it's a really kind of a low key low-tech kind of a zombie movie, but I, I, I really enjoyed it a lot, so I would recommend it. It's a Netflix original. Okay. But back to my book. Yeah, back, back to y- book. your book. Your book's what's important. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, where I left off. So Mark, Mark Rodiger sort of gave me this invitation to write a book about Dr. Hynek's career. And at that point, I was, I was familiar with Dr. Hynek's career as a UFO investigator, um, I, I was familiar with the fact that he had developed the whole Close Encounters UFO um, classification system. That was that was his work, um, and I knew that his work had inspired the Steven Spielberg movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So those were the things I knew about him, and I thought, well, yeah, pretty interesting guy. He'll be fun to write a book about. Um, but but early on, I I just started thinking, but you know, he's also he was also a professional astronomer and educator um, from the 1930s all the way up to the 1980s. Uh, and, I, and I decided I wanted to look into that side of his life as well, because I, I thought, I bet you there are probably going to be a lot of instances where his career as an astronomer um, informed his career as a UFO hunter and vice versa. And I thought that would be a really interesting way to look at his life. You know, to kind of learn about who he was as a scientist, and at the at the same time learn about who he was um, as a ufologist. So that was the approach I took with the book. So I already had the UFO uh, research well in hand, you know, because I had access to all of Hynek's files at, in the at the Kufos uh, the Kufos uh, headquarters in Chicago. But then I also found pretty quickly that. Um, Dr. Hynek had taught astronomy at Northwestern University for much of his career. And Northwestern University is a couple miles from my Chicago house in the opposite direction. So I started going to the, uh, I started going to the Northwestern uh, archives in the basement of their library, and the archivists there were just 
so excited to be working on such a neat project. They just they were wonderful people. They bent over backwards to find anything I needed in their archives. And so I started to learn about Dr. Hynek's, you know, career as a scientist and an educator and learned that he really, really was very, very accomplished in, in all of his careers. And sure enough, like I said, there were a lot of things about his astronomy career that reflected on his UFO career and vice versa. Um, for instance, early on in his career, Hynek was hired by the Air Force to do a study on, believe it or not, how stars twinkle. Um, I was really fascinated to find this out because it, it didn't make much sense to me. Why would the Air Force want to learn how stars twinkle? Well, it turns out there's a very good reason for it. If you are a fighter pilot up in the sky and you see a, sh you see a light in the sky and you can't tell what it is right away, it could be a star or it could be uh, another aircraft. It could be something hostile in the sky. You better have a pretty good idea. You better be able to identify it. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Pretty quickly. So Hynek's work on how you can tell when a star is twinkling was actually kind of had, you know, a practical practical benefit for Air Force uh, pilots, but it also came in handy in his UFO research because he came across so many hundreds, maybe thousands of cases where people were sure they had seen a spaceship, but in reality, you know, it was just the planet Venus or it was the star Arcturus, you know, and if these people had actually understood how a star twinkles, they would have been able to make a better ID. They would have known that they weren't actually looking at a UFO. So I kept finding those kinds of things where Hynek's two careers sort of crossed over into each other. And that kind of became the, 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 the basis of the book, the backbone of the book, I guess. That's how I decided to tell the story. I got to ask you a question, though. Sure. Okay. What causes a star to twinkle? <laughs> well... Mostly it's atmospheric interference, but there are a lot of weird little wrinkles to this. Now, one of the things he studied was, uh, does a binary star twinkle differently than a regular star? And he found out that, yes, they do. So there's a way to tell from the twinkling which, which if a star is just a single star or a binary star. He also found out that um, you can tell the wind speed and direction by the way a star is twinkling, believe it or not. Oh, uh, you wow. have to be looking you have to be very observant, I think, to be able to make that determination. But, you know, he was an astronomer. He would spend hours looking through a telescope. So he was used to making those kinds of really long um 
long, meticulous observations of things. So this, you know, it just came naturally to him. So those were some of the things he studied when, and what Danny learned about when he was doing these uh, these scintillation studies for the Air Force. Oh wow, that's all. I, but, I, I, yeah, but go ahead. Go that, ahead. That led to interest. So this is yeah, I love telling these stories because this is still also fascinating to me. So that early work for the Air Force studying how stars twinkle came back uh, into um, his career in the late 50s and early 60s when he developed this, uh, this, he developed this program called Stargazer. And again, the Air Force financed it. And his idea was that if you could launch a telescope, a high-powered telescope into a high-altitude balloon that could lift you up above the Earth's atmosphere you could get rid of that interference and you could get a much clearer image of the stars in the sky. Um, which, and, and that experiment, you know, I, I go into it in great de- detail in the book, that experiment ultimately um, was not a success, but if you think about it, it obviously paved the way for the Hubble Space Telescope. Hynek was the first person to dream up the idea of getting a telescope out from under the Earth's atmosphere, out into orbit. Now, in his experiment in these high-altitude balloons, they can only go up about 15 miles. So they weren't completely free of the atmosphere, um, but they were free enough that it did make a big, big difference in the, or it would have made a big difference in the image quality um, had the project succeeded. But I just thought, again, I thought that was such a fascinating aspect of his career that this, this crazy idea he dreamed up in the 1950s of getting a telescope up above the Earth's atmosphere um, literally paved the way for the Hubble Space Telescope and all the other space telescopes that we have in orbit uh, now. Oh, yeah. So Heineck was behind all of that. Oh, if he wouldn't have came up with that idea, but maybe we wouldn't have those telescopes right now where they're at. Well, it's possible. And he also came up with another with another variation on that idea. He did some work in the 1960s helping with uh, the Apollo moon landing programs. Uh, he would help uh, determine landing sites for the for the Apollo missions. And at one point, he pitched an idea to NASA for one of the Apollo missions to take along a telescope to um, leave on the surface of the moon. So same kind of idea. Um, The telescope would obviously be free of the Earth's atmosphere, and obviously there's no atmosphere on the moon, so this telescope would be able to get much clearer images um, of stars and planets and celestial bodies and then beam those images back down to Earth. It could also be used to point at the Earth and, you know, monitor the Earth's atmosphere and weather and things like that. So, so Heineck was always cooking up these. When he had a good idea, he would keep cooking up various, you know, various uh, variations of the idea to, to try to make it work in, in this way or in, in that way. Really, really fascinating guy. That sounds like it. Now, uh, the question is, when you went in that basement, I mean, were you shocked about all the, you know, reports he had, all the information he had? Yeah, I was. I mean, I was shocked in two ways. I was shocked, number one, that so much had been preserved, which made me very happy, but also shocked that they, they hadn't really been, they weren't really being taken care of properly. And, and, and I don't mean that as a criticism at all. It's nobody's fault. There just isn't money for it. These are, these are all records that really should be, um, they should be archived and they should be preserved and they should be protected. And they're not right now. They're just there's so there was Mark Rodiger's basement, and there's another one of the Kufos uh, officers who lives across town who also had a bunch of material case files in her basement. 
she also had additional case files up in her attic, which was very difficult to get to. So, you know, the, the, the material was fantastic, but the state of the material and the accessibility of the material was, was kind of a problem. So I was disappointed in that. And like I said, it was just a bunch of beat-up old file cabinets and bookshelves and just, just um, a wealth of material there, but just not, not really preserved the way it should be. And I, I, I would hope that at some point there will be resources and, and money and interest um, in preserving that material because it's, it's really wonderful stuff. Well, that's the problem. Even nowadays, I mean, you know, there's a lot of groups. There's like Peter Davenport, you know, that tracks, you know, uh, UFO sightings and stuff. What's going to happen when he passes on? I mean, you know, with all the information he's gathered, I mean, there's so much of that information out there that basically will be lost. Just like like what you're talking about right now. I mean, you know, being kind of stored in a couple of different places uh, between the attic and the basement and all that stuff. I mean, you know, it's probably wasn't some form of starting to break down if I'm willing to bet. But I mean, that's is rich. I mean, if without that type of stuff, ah, boy, I mean, that is information that should be, you know, where people, you know, that are into it should be able to have access to what it is. Yeah. And, you know. And the, but then there's this, there's also this other aspect of it that's, um, you know, people are also very proprietary about their UFO records. So, you know, the, the, and, and again, I'm not uh, I'm not saying this to criticize anyone because I think it's a perfectly natural thing. But one organization has their own case files and they guard those very jealously, and another organization has their case files and they guard those very jealously, and they they're not willing to share with each other. So, you know, to me, that kind of hinders UFO research. I think it would be a much better situation if people were more interested in sharing and, and, and you know, making information available to others. doesn't always work out that way. Um, but, yeah, the, the um, I'm trying to think now. The, the case files in this the second basement that I mentioned, I, I, I don't know for sure, but I'm willing to bet that that collection has, um, oh my gosh, it's it's got to be in the thousands, and it's cases going back back all the way to the 1940s, all the way up to present day, um, and it's just file cabinet after file cabinet after file cabinet. You could you could spend days looking through this stuff, and 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 you'd still want to read more because it's just so fascinating. It sounds like you well documented everything. Yeah, he did. Well, you know, that started out because he um, he got into the UFO business because uh, the Air Force approached him back in the late 1940s about working for them on this new um, this new UFO study, which uh, to begin with was called Project Sign, Project S I G N, Project Sign. Um, and this was when this was formed by the Air Force back in the late 40s when the the UFO craze was really just beginning. And um, people would see strange things in the sky. They wouldn't be able to identify them. And they'd want to find out what it was they saw. Well, who do you call? You're going to call the Air Force because the Air Force is in charge of protecting eyes. So the Air Force um, was getting all these UFO reports in the late 1940s. They had no idea what to do with them. And finally, a very wise general, Hoyt Vandenberg, said, you know what, this is... Uh, um, 
oh, you know, oh, no, it wasn't Vandenberg. I think it was uh, General Twining. Yeah, it's been a while since I've done my research, so sometimes my names slip up a little, so you'll have to forgive me. Um, but someone at the Air Force was wise enough to say, you know what, we should set up a special group to study these things because we don't know what they are and we really need to know if they pose a threat to our country. So the Air Force puts together Project Sign. They quickly realize that they need a scientist on staff um, to sort of give them cover for their analyses of these of these UFO sightings. So um, Project Sign was housed at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base um, in Ohio. Heineck at the time was teaching at Ohio State, so he was you know he was about 90 miles away from the Air Force Base. So um, these Air Force guys show up at Heineck's uh, office at Ohio State one day, and they offer them him this interesting consulting job. They say we've got we've got hundreds and hundreds of UFO reports. We would like to hire you to go through these reports and let us know if this person was really looking at a star or a comet or a meteor, so that we can file these away as explained because the Air Force really wanted to explain all of these cases. So so that's how Heineck got into the business. He was recruited by the Air Force, and once or twice a month, he would just he'd get a stack of reports from the Air Force, and he'd go through them, and he would read the case report, and he would check his star charts and you know the guy was a the guy was a had been a professional astronomer now for almost twenty years he He knew his stuff inside and out, and it was very easy for him to read a report and say, "Oh well, this person was obviously looking at the planet Venus. Oh well, this person was obviously looking at a comet. This comet appeared in that part of the sky that night so so Heineck was really, really good at debunking these uFO reports that's how he got into it um and so you know case files started to pile up with the Air Force. So that's one place they came from. But then KUFOS, you know, when KUFOS was founded in the 1970s, they started getting, you know, their own massive influx of UFO reports. So that's where all these file cabinets that I'm talking about, that's where all the paperwork in those file cabinets comes from. It's a lot of old Blue Book stuff, but it's a lot of KUFOS stuff from over the years. So it's literally decades and decades of, of uh, UFO reports. And the thing is about UFO reports, if, any, if you or any of your listeners have ever like, looked through the Blue Book archives, you have to go through a lot of weak, sometimes useless <laughs> reports and information before you find anything that's actually really interesting and credible. Um, so that's the other part of it. All these thousands and thousands of case files in all these file drawers but you have to look through so much stuff before you find a sighting that actually jumps out and is like, oh, this is different. This isn't just a little light in the sky. There's actually something really interesting going on in this case. Those are the ones you want to look for, but you have to really, really look hard and to put a lot of time into it. Yeah. And, you know, one thing like you mentioned, uh, uh, Project Blue Book, uh, I read one time that, the, the you know, the Air Force – when they were investi- investigating it, they tried their best to debunk it as they were investigating. Now, maybe I was wrong, but uh, the articles I was reading about it, but it seemed like, you know, they wanted to close out each case uh, oh, really, yeah. really fast. Yeah, and that was, and you know, and that explains why they wanted to hire Dr. Hynek, because they knew they could count on him to identify as many 
cases as possible as, uh, you know, very ordinary astronomical or atmospheric phenomenon. Yeah, they desperately wanted to explain the UFO cases away because they didn't want, um, you know, number one, they didn't want the American public to be worried about this weird phenomenon that was going on. Um, but at the same time, it was kind of a, it was a point of pride. You know, the Air Force's, like I said, the Air Force's one and only job is to keep our skies safe. And here we have these weird objects being sighted all over the country and actually all over the world. And the Air Force is completely powerless to, they can't identify these things. They can't chase them down. Um, they can't they can't figure out what they're made of or where they come from or, or who's piloting them. If if they are in fact vehicles, they're just completely clueless. So so you know the the UFO studies from the Air Force really came out of this really really pressing need to kind of assure the American public that number one we're safe we're not under threat and number two the Air Force actually knows what it's doing. Yeah, they knew what they were doing. I, I for a long time and they're still doing it. I, I hate to say it they they tried to debunk it. Everything. Oh, yeah. That's like, yeah, yeah. you know, like recently, you know, that footage that came out from the Navy two fighters, you know, back uh, when I think it was released around November. I mean, I was even surprised that hit, you know, the news media, the Internet, and they really didn't try debunking that too much. Well, yeah, that's uh, that that whole episode, I have to say, I I am completely undecided about. I have not. I have some problems with it. I definitely have some problems with it. And you're right. The Air Force hasn't come out and debunked it, which seems really weird to me. I still don't really understand how these people got a hold of this Air Force footage. That's a whole that's a whole another topic though. I don't know if we we could we could spend the whole show tonight talking about that and and there are many other things to talk about. So I don't want to go down that rabbit hole at least not just now. Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Case, and it does raise a lot of interesting questions. And so far, nobody really seems to have any good answers. I'll just, I'll just put, it, put it that way. Oh, that, or maybe maybe they got caught with their pants down this time. <laughs> it's possible. It's possible they sure haven't. I'm I'm surprised that these the fighter pilots are being are being allowed to talk publicly about this. I guess that's one of the most surprising things to me, is that if if this if this is if this all really happened, it's very weird that the Air Force is allowing these pilots to speak so freely about it, unless it represents a complete change of policy by the Air Force, which 
you know, I guess that's possible, too. Well, you know, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole, but I am concerned on one thing. You know, you had that video, you know, leak out. And then uh, about a month or so later, you had the secretary of the Air Force, you know, in front of the cadet class, you know, saying, hey, the next war is not going to be a ground war. You know, it's going to be out in outer space. That was brought up, which I thought was kind of really strange because you could take it two ways. You could think, oh, maybe Russia, China, there'll be rockets and they'll be fought out in outer space, or maybe it could be something else. And then a couple months ago, we had our president, you know, jokingly say, hey, maybe we should create a space force. Now we, you know, he instructed to do that. And I kind of find it so strange we didn't have money to replace the shuttles uh we you know we destroyed the rockets we had that went up to the moon and the extra capsules we had and you know and they're talking about going to mars but yet we never went back and really put anybody on the moon and see how long they could live i'm just wondering if maybe it's something is strange you know in the fire and that they, they can't maybe keep it in the can too much longer some interesting thinking. Well, that's just that my thinking. Is. I see where I, you're going with that. I, I guess I watch sci-fi and all, Comet and all those stuff, and watching those <laughs> Class B or actually Class C. You know the the uh, you know space movies that are so bad that they're good. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I love those. <laughs> As I said before, I'm addicted to all that stuff. Oh yeah, that's my problem. <laughs> so. Uh, let's go more in depth a little bit, but you can about the book. I mean, we got an hour and a half, so I mean, okay. you know, whatever you volunteer and want to talk about to Michael comes on. Cause I know he's going to have a million and one questions because you know, he's the paranormal lawyer and being a lawyer, he's <laughs> going to have questions. All right. That could, that's a little intimidating, but I'll do my best. Oh, he's um, not an intimidating person at all. All right. Good, good. We'll, we'll do fine. I'm sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, back to the book. I guess. I guess um, one of the things I can say about it is, you know, I, I mentioned that one of one of the one of the things that got me so enthused about it was the fact that I could tell these two stories: the story of Dr. Heineck's UFO work, and then the story of his scientific work as an astronomer. But there were a couple other things about him that really, really intrigued me. One of them was the fact that um, he. He was very much a scientist. He needed to have, he needed to see the facts in front of him. He would not be convinced by anything except facts. Um, you know, so in that sense, he was, you know, he was like the ideal scientist. But at the same time, he also had this kind of almost mystical side to him, which I found really intriguing. Um, he, when he was in high school and college. You know, a lot of us will start, you know, reading reading and being exposed to really interesting schools of thought when we're that age. Well, uh, you know, Heineck was no different. He started, he started um, learning about the Rosicrucians, and he started reading about this interesting uh, spiritual educator named Rudolf Steiner um, and really became intrigued with these ideas of parallel dimensions um, and being able to being able to visit the past and being able to make contact with uh, with the dead, and that was I think that was especially interesting to him because um, he had lost both of his parents uh, when he was a teenager. Um, so he and he was an only child. So here he is, an, an only child and an orphan, 
um, and he and he's going to school to become an astronomer, and he's spending night after night, you know, gazing into infinity in this gigantic telescope at the Yerkes Observatory in Wisconsin. Um, you know, and you and, and Mark Rodiger from Kufos, he said, well, he told me, well, you can see where you can see where that kind of experience could you know, induce some mystical thinking in, in certain people. And that, that definitely seemed to happen with Hynek. So that was another thing about his career and his, and his personality that I thought would make a really good uh, story for the book. And, the, and the, the third thing, and this is the thing that probably most of your readers will be most familiar with, um, the, the, the third thing was the whole the swamp gas um, incident. Um, a lot of people, when they hear swamp gas, they know immediately what you're talking about. Uh, at the very least, people know it has something to do with UFOs, but if people have read about or studied UFOs, then they know that swamp ga- gas refers to um, this very, very famous UFO case in 1966. It took place in southern Michigan. And this was when Hynek had been working for the Air Force pretty steadily um, for for... You know, almost 20 years, Heineck had been researching UFO cases for the Air Force. So he had a pretty good idea after 20 years, you know, what was legit and what wasn't. So in March of uh, 1966, there's just a whole series of UFO sightings in southern Michigan. Um, First, there's sightings by um, law enforcement officers in all around the area. For a couple of weeks, they keep seeing these strange lights in the sky, and sometimes they give chase to them. Uh, and of course, they ne- of course they never catch up with them. Um, but there was all sorts of talk around Southern Michigan about all these weird sightings by the, by the local policemen. And then there was a sighting at this farm. Um, this is all sort of in the general vicinity of Ann Arbor. Um, there was a sighting at this farm with a, a family living on the farm who saw some strange lights in a swamp down below their house and the father and the son went down to investigate and they just they saw these weird glowing lights in the swamp and they would disappear and reappear somewhere else and they would rise and fall like they were under some kind of control um and the family calls the police and before you know it there are police cars from all over the region showing up at this farm wanting to see the ufos and it becomes national news. And then the very next night, uh, about uh, less than 100 miles from this farm, very next night, uh, a bunch of college co-eds at Hillsdale College, um, they also see virtually the same kind of thing that the farm family described. They see these glowing lights. They're mostly red and green and yellow, and they're floating in the arboretum, which had some swampy areas to it. Um, this, you know, this being March, it's springtime, so, you know, there are a lot of marshy water, waterlogged areas. So about 80 or 90 students from this dormitory spend a couple hours watching these strange lights out in the Arboretum across the street, and they're convinced that they're seeing a UFO, just like the farm family was. Well, between these two cases, um, this story becomes a huge, huge national story. Um, and it really puts the Air Force on the spot. So they need to they need to um, they need to explain away these UFOs as quickly as they can. So they send Dr. Hynek to Southern Michigan, and he spends he gets there on a Tuesday, 
and he's there. He's investigating all day Wednesday and all day Thursday and all day Friday, and then at the end of the day Friday, his boss at the Air Force um, forces him to hold a press conference in Detroit. Well, at the press conference, of course, everybody's everybody's just super excited um, because the people who are interested in the UFO phenomenon are excited because they think this is going to be the big one. They think this is the case that's going to prove to the world that not only are UFOs real, but they are um, but they are spaceships from another planet. So all the UFO people are super excited about it because of that. Air Force is excited about it because they they think we're going to kill this UFO phenomenon <laughs> here and now. We're finally going to be rid of it. So they force Heineck to have this press conference, and he's put on the spot because he hasn't had enough time to really fully research all the sightings, and he feels like he's totally unprepared for this press conference. Well, he gets up to the podium and he starts to talk, and he says, he says, although I couldn't prove it in a court of law, I think it's possible that all these people have been seeing swamp gas. Well, Heineck had more to say, but nobody wanted to listen to anything else he had to say, because as soon as they heard the word swamp gas, all the reporters ran to their phones and called in their stories and said, hey, the Air Force's number one UFO expert just called everybody in Michigan an idiot because they can't tell swamp gas from a UFO. <laughs> so so it became this huge, huge national fear. Pretty much the entire state of Michigan was furious at the Air Force for the way they had treated the whole thing. Everybody hated Heineck. Um, the Air Force hated Heineck because he had embarrassed them completely with the way he handled things. All of Heineck's UFO colleagues were also angry with him. I mean, not just angry, furious with him because they felt that he had just told a lie to cover for the Air Force. So Heineck couldn't get a break. People on both sides of the UFO issue were furious with him after the swamp gas interview. And he basically, he beat it back to Illinois, back to Chicago. He did not want to stick around. <laughs> and he just got lambasted in, in the media, in newspapers, and in TV and radio news. Everybody was just making fun of Heineck for, for, because they just thought Swamp Gas was such a stupid excuse, a stupid explanation. He was obviously lying or making it up. Um, hey, but, so one, but one, kind of, one thing, though, I want to mention, Mark, because sure. of that, I mean, when I was young, I don't know how many times people would say, oh, what you're talking about, you know, the swamp guy. People use that term yeah. for almost everything. So, I mean, he created I a know. term that basically debunked anything and he didn't realize <laughs> it. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and that's kind of one of the that's again that's one of the interesting little twists to Heineck's life story that I enjoyed so much and made it so much fun to to write uh, the book. Is yeah, you're right. I mean, that basically became a pop culture catchphrase um, before anybody even knew what a pop culture catchphrase was. Yeah. All of a sudden, all you have to do is say swamp gas, and people know you're talking about UFOs. It's, yeah, it's it's really fascinating. So, and Heineck is the guy who started it. But it's important to remember, though, that he did say, I couldn't prove it in a court of law. So he wasn't totally convinced that it was swamp gas. He just thought it was a strong possibility that it was swamp gas. But nobody heard that. Everybody heard, everybody thought they heard J. Allen Heineck saying, every UFO that's ever been sighted was swamp gas. That's, that's the story that came out from that Detroit press conference. 
So it couldn't have gone worse. It just couldn't have gone worse for Heineck. He became like public enemy number one. But, but, and this is one of the most surprising things I found in my research, um, and this I found at the Northwestern University Archives. In his correspondence files from 1966 all the way through the late 60s, right after the swamp gas incident, even though so many people were mad at him, the the weird opposite effect was that that whole incident made Heineck a superstar. It made him a media star because everybody knew who the nation's number one UFO expert was. And so these correspondence files at Northwestern are just stuffed with letter after letter after letter from people writing fan mail, literally writing fan mail to Dr. Heineck after the swamp gas incident. And the letters kind of split into two two main categories. The first category is people writing to say, I'm really interested in, in UFOs and your work. Could you please tell me more? And then there's a second category of letters from people saying, oh, my gosh, I saw the most amazing thing in the sky last year. I never thought I could tell anybody about it, but now I want to tell you. So Heineck started getting all this incredible mail from people, like I said, all over the world as a result of the swamp gas thing. So this incident that, you know, seemed like it was just blowing up in his face and was going to completely ruin his reputation actually enhanced his reputation. He became he became the first, you know, UFO superstar. Totally unexpectedly. Nobody saw it coming, but that's exactly what happened. Now, the information, maybe I, because I'm going back on memory years ago, but, you know, uh, didn't he kind of change his story towards the older he got about uh, that he actually believed in yeah. UFOs? Because at the start, he was really yeah. skeptical and kind of known for debunking. I mean, that's what the Air Force hired him for was to debunk. But then towards the yeah. end, it went the opposite way. He started, you know, actually talking about UFOs. Yeah, and it, and that's another really fascinating part of his story, and that and, and 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 to me, really, one of the things that makes him such a such a you know, he's not just a character; he's he's a, he's a a real human being who you know makes bad decisions sometimes and doesn't always say the right thing, and so this whole transformation he went through from from skeptic and debunker to a lot of people will just will use the term true believer. That's not exactly right, but it's close enough. But yeah, he did go through, like you say, he went through this huge transformation. And and again, that's that's another reason why people were so angry at him over the swamp gas thing, because they saw this as part of this whole big betrayal by Dr. Hynek. What happened was, as we've been talking about, so the Air Force kind of pulled him into this UFO mess in the late 1940s. And Heineck went along with it because he thought it would be easy work. He'd pick up an extra... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, 
Sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A paycheck from the Air Force. You know, he's got a growing family. A little extra money on the side never hurts. And he thought he would sort of, sort of be um, doing good PR work for science, you know? Sort of you know, disabusing people of the idea that there was some kind of pseudoscience going on, that no, this, this actually is something that we can explain if we have enough time and resources to, you know, to study it. So that's how Heineck started out. Well, it didn't take long for some chinks to appear in his armor. It was actually only about four years into his uh, work for the Air Force. By this time, so now we're at 1952, um, the Air Force's UFO project has morphed from Project Sign into Project Grudge, and then it morphed from Project Grudge into Project Blue Book, which is you know the one that I think most people today are familiar with. So, so Heineck was employed on Project Sign. He he wasn't involved with the second one, Project Grudge, but he was brought back in on Project Blue Book in 1952 because once again UFO reports were just were just burying the Air Force. They were just getting so many UFO reports, and they just they still couldn't, they still didn't know what to do with them. So they went back to Ohio State, back to Dr. Hynek, and the new uh, the new project chief for Blue Book, uh, Edward Ruppelt, approaches Hynek and says, um, "Would you come back and help? <laughs> we need we need your scientific perspective on this. We need you to help us." explain these sightings that are just these reports are just coming in by the hundreds every day so Heineck agrees to come back and he starts looking through so he's been out of the ufo business for like three years at this point well he starts looking at all the recent case reports and he starts to notice something really odd going on back in the early days when he was first working with project sign he was able to explain away about 80% of the sightings as just perfectly ordinary things. Um, That left about 20% of the sightings that he couldn't explain. But he felt like, well, if we had enough time and resources, we could probably explain those other 20% also. So he wasn't too worried about that. Well, three years later, the Air Force re-recruits him, gets him to join Project Blue Book. He starts looking at these recent files and guess what he finds? He finds, wow, I'm, I'm able to explain away about 20% of these reports, but there are still these weird, nagging 20% that I can't explain. And he starts to think, wow, not only has this UFO phenomenon lasted a lot longer than I thought it would, because here we are four years, five years later, and these reports are still coming in. So not only has the phenomenon persisted all this time, but there's still a consistent 20% of these reports that nobody can explain. And that's what got Hynek to start to change his mind. He didn't completely change his mind, but that's what got him to start thinking a little differently. And the, the big change for him that came about at that point was, it wasn't, hey, you guys, these are spaceships from an alien world. He didn't go that far. He just started thinking, you know what, there's something going on here 
that we don't seem to be able to understand, and it could be something important for our understanding of the universe. And so as scientists, I think we have a duty to research it. We have a duty to take it seriously. And at that point, he sort of made this declaration at a scientific convention in 1952. And, he, and, and when he was giving that speech, he said this one thing that is like my favorite J. Allen Hynek quote of them all. He said, ridicule is not part of the scientific method, and the American public should not be taught that it is. That was Hynek's like battle cry. And I just think that was such a powerful thing for him to say to this group of scientists. Of course, most of the scientists didn't listen, didn't want to know. But the fact that Heineck came out with the, those wise words, I think, says a lot about where, you know, where his mind was at at that point. He wasn't saying, I believe this stuff. He was just saying, this is something we need to take seriously, and we shouldn't laugh at the people who come forward to tell us about their experiences. Because it seems like these have been really real experiences. And what right do we have to ridicule these people? So that was a, you know, if you look at the whole history of UFO lore, that's a pretty important moment to have a respected, sober scientist saying, hey, let's take this seriously and let's not make fun of these people. That's a huge thing. Well, you know, it's just too many cases of reportings, you know, of different areas like around Mount Rainier, uh, McNeil Island in Washington State, you know, all across the country. And, yeah, you can debunk them, you know, a certain amount. Uh, I had a friend, uh, I don't know if you remember Republic Airlines. They were, mm, they were, no, I don't. They were like as big as TWA or pretty close to it at one time back in the seventies and eighties, they were a major airline, but they ended up going well when the economy went bad at that time, they didn't survive. But I knew, uh, one of the vice presidents of it and, you know, he was a pilot and worked his way up, but he was telling me like, uh, in Vietnam, you know, he would go from Guam, uh, with a payload on the B 52 and, you know, and drop it in North Vietnam, then go back. He said he had two, uh, sightings of ufos and uh you know he made the mistake of reporting one oh. and when he you know and he was a colonel at that point uh-huh. basically he said uh that he realized he was not going to ever get promoted again and uh wow. you know when he his term was up or whatever that's when he went into commercial uh you know airlines uh, because he knew he had no more future in the military. But he said it was really bad is when he landed, you know, the guys in the suits were there, you know, uh, some generals were there. They they broke up his whole crew in different rooms and basically said, you didn't see anything. If you just, you know, uh-huh. you know, if you ever say you see anything, you know, then they started telling, you know, supposedly, you know, what could happen and all this stuff. And, uh, but that, that wasn't the part that really concerned me. As being a vice president of Republic Airlines, uh, he would tell me that, you know, pilots would talk to him about seeing UFOs. And again, if you were a pilot uh, and you talked, uh, you know, oh, I saw a UFO and you reported it, your career was gone. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. That's, But... But the fact that your friend was was willing to talk about it, though, at that stage in his career, I think that's quite awesome. And, and that reminds me of something that um, I also spent, leading up to writing this book, I also spent a couple years, well, five years, actually, 
um, working as a, a certified field investigator for MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. Oh, wow. Because I thought, I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to be writing about UFOs, not just in my blog, but in my book as well, I thought it would really help for me to um, spend time talking with real UFO witnesses to try to understand, you know, what the experience was like for them and, and how the experience has changed them, if it has changed them. So I had some really, really interesting experiences um, talking with UFO witnesses. But uh, one, of the, one of the cases I investigated that was still one of the most amazing UFO stories I've ever known is um, I investigated a sighting that took place back, way back in 1980. This, the witness had waited since 1980 to report what he had seen to move on. And I want to respect the gentleman's privacy, so I won't go into a whole lot of detail. But but uh, the sighting in 1980 took place while he was in the serving in the military. Um, he saw an extremely strange thing while he was out on a night night shift, basically on a security patrol. And there were several, actually quite a few other uh, servicemen uh, outside at the same time. He's quite sure that everybody saw the same thing. Um, the next morning, he went to his uh, immediate superior and said, what are we going to do about what happened last night? And his superior said, you're on your own. So that made things pretty clear to him what he was up against. So he said, well, you know, has the, has the base commanding officer been told about this? And his superior was like, I don't know. So, so this guy, my witness, went, sought out the commanding officer and, and told him what he had seen the night before and that he was pretty sure that a lot of other servicemen had seen the same thing. And the CO said, I tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. He said, if, if this sighting is reported in the local newspaper, then I will order an investigation. But that's the only way I'll do it. And this gentleman told me, well, you know, of course the CO knew he had me over a barrel because he said, we're, you know, we're living on an army base. We don't have access to the local newspaper. We can't just go into town to buy the newspaper. So the CO knew he had him over a barrel. Um, but I, I just thought that was such a fascinating situation where the guys, you know, he wasn't the only witness. There were many other witnesses or at least potential other witnesses. And he just got shot down immediately by his commanding officers. It's it's really, it's just shocking what a knee-jerk reaction that always is. But the other part of that, though, the other side of that that I, that I wanted to mention is, I've also found since I started, you know, blogging and, and since I've written the book, that um, there are a whole lot more people. There are a whole lot more people out there who've seen strange things in the sky than you can possibly imagine. The numbers are amazing. It's just that very few people have the confidence to tell anybody what they've seen. But here's what I found. Because everybody, you know, all my friends and my family and, you know, people who know about me, they know that I'm, you know, I wrote a UFO book and I'm a UFO person. So I'm often in conversations with people where the topic of UFO come, UFOs come up and... You know, I, I always treat the subject um, seriously. I, I never I never laugh about it. Um, well, I take that back. There's there there are always some incidents that you do end up kind of having to laugh about. 
but I take I take the phenomenon seriously, and I take the UFO witnesses seriously. And when when um, the people I'm talking with sense that I'm not going to make fun of them, they will very often say, "Well, you know, I saw something once. I've never told anybody about it. Uh, here's what happened." And it's just amazing how often, if you basically sort of establish um, a ridicule-free zone where people just feel like they can open up to you and tell you about an experience, they will. Because chances are they've been keeping this inside for a long, long time, sometimes many, many years. And they've never told a soul, and they've always wondered, number one, am I crazy? Number two, has anybody else ever seen anything like the thing I saw? So... It's, that was a real, real eye-opener to me, just finding out how if you, if you take the topic seriously in social conversation, you will be amazed at how many people will speak up and say, I saw something once, I saw something once. I mean, that happened with my father-in-law a couple of years ago. My wife and I were, were, um, were on an outing with, with uh, my father and mother-in-law, and my, we were talking about my book because I was in the middle of writing it at the time. And, and my mother-in-law says, she kind of motioned over at her husband. She said, well, you know, he's had an experience once. And my wife didn't know anything about this, and I didn't know anything about this. And it took us probably a half an hour to get my father-in-law comfortable enough that he would actually tell us his story. And it was a great story. It was really wild. But it just took him forever. But he finally told us the story because he trusted us that we weren't just going to roll our eyes or make fun of him when he told the story. So I just, that's one message I would love to deliver to your listeners. When you're ever in a conversation about UFOs, treat people with respect. Treat the phenomenon with respect, and you'll just be amazed at how people open up to you about, about their own experiences. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what I find? Uh, I've had a couple of different paranormal experiences, I kept quiet for many, many years till I started doing this talk show, and I brought it up myself. I saw a UFO. Uh, well, I didn't actually see it. I saw the light. How's that? In the mid-70s, in the middle of um, uh, New Mexico in the desert, and uh, it scared me uh, because I, I, when I got out of my car and it was so bright, uh, it hurt my eyes. But I didn't hear, you know, like a helicopter noise. I didn't hear any noise. It was this total desert sound late at night. And uh-huh. uh, it was eerie. And as fast as it came and I got out of the car and I was staring at it, it was gone. And when it was gone, it was like instantly gone. And uh, I don't know what it is. I mean, I, I classified a UFO because I, I surely don't know what it is. I know it wasn't no helicopter, so... Well, it's interesting that, that your reaction to it, and that's something I came across over and over again. Um, as an investigator for MUFON, like I said, I, I signed up for that because I wanted to try to get a better understanding of, you know, of how a person experiences a UFO event and how they, how they describe it. Um, and, 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 what, and again, and what makes them decide to report what they've seen to a place like MUFON or any, you know, any other UFO organization. And um, almost, almost entirely, the answers are almost always the same. People do not expect, n- nobody's trying to get famous or rich um, over reporting a UFO incident. 
some people are just doing it as a joke, and you spot those people out pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. But most, the vast majority of the UFO witnesses that I talked to, their reasons for reporting were just as simple as you can get. They wanted to know, number one, can you tell me what I saw? <laughs> Which is, you know, putting a lot of trust in the investigator, because, you know, most of the time the answer is, well, no, I can't tell you what you saw. But their second question is, has anybody else ever seen anything like this? People always want to know that because I guess there's just this, you know, there's this real. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Insurance factor. Oh, other people have seen this same thing, too. I'm not crazy. There's nothing wrong with me. And, and, and that was a really, really good thing for me to learn, you know, that people's motivations for reporting this are really kind of just these basic human okay. needs. Okay, one minute here, Mark. We i got to answer this uh, call and okay. uh, add them into our conversation. All hey, right. Hey, Michael, is that you? Hello? Hey, Michael. Oh. Hello, Gary. Okay, you're there. Well, you're. We got Mark on, and uh, you know he's. I'm going to go ahead and let him finish what he's talking about. But you're welcome to yeah. ask ask him any questions uh, as it moves on. Wonderful. I'm, I'm listening. I hope you've been listening to it. Uh, <laughs> you right. know, I hope you've been listening to it uh, before you came on. Yes, I did. Wonderful show. This is fantastic. Oh well, thanks. Thanks. Well. Um, yeah, like I said before, once I get started talking about this stuff, it's hard for me to shut up, so <laughs> be warned. Well, Mark, Mark i got to compliment you on this, uh, this great biography. This is, you know, I have never seen anybody uh, take a subject like this on with Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Um, what an iconic figure in ufology, and, um, you know, most everybody has done, uh, you know, the other... Uh, ufologists out there uh, because they're easier to um, kind of track down on all their stuff, but I can't believe you got a hold of all of his archives. That's fantastic. Well, I just kind of lucked into it, and, and like I said earlier, it was just sort of it was just kind of convenient how it it ended up that all his archives were you know, you know, right right within a couple miles of where I lived in Chicago. It was just amazing. Oh, and the other thing, so you know, it, that was the Kufos files, and and his archival materials at Northwestern University. The one I failed to mention was um, University of Chicago, which is where uh, Heineck got his, uh, his, his Ph.D. in astronomy back in the 1930s. 
So, right. and again, uh, another huge archive that was just basically landed in my lap because it just happened to be right there in Chicago. So, you know, I got really, really lucky with the research. I really did. Well, and, and uh, thank God there was a guy like you who was able to run across it, <laughs> let alone some uh, some other folks that uh, couldn't write as well as you do. So, good job. Well, that thank you. That's a huge compliment. Thank you so much. Well, I, you know, I can say this was it was definitely a labor of love. Um, I, I'm, I'm obviously I'm the world's biggest fan of Dr. Heinex. I think his, I think his kind of, he was often misunderstood, and he often frustrated and angered the people he worked with. But I think I, I don't think there's anybody who has done as much to establish the credibility of UFO research as Dr. Heinex did. I, just, I don't think anybody else even comes close to what he accomplished. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, you know, a matter of fact, um, the uh, the fact that he was actually picked for that film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, to be the iconic uh, ufologist in the movie, that, that was fascinating to me. I, I remember in 1977, I was a, a tour guide at Universal Studios. <laughs> and oh, wow. That, that movie came out <clears throat> that summer, and of course, uh, at Universal, they give us all the press releases on all the new out- upcoming films, and we have to kind of like, you know, promote them, you know, prior to their release to the crowds that come through, uh, literally from all over the world. And I remember picking up the fact, uh, of course, I was into ufology way before then myself, so as a young a young guy interested in this, I I knew who J. Allen Hynek was, and I'm saying, oh, my gosh, this guy here is, you know, from the Air Force Blue Book, and now he's actually coming out, you know, on the other side, of course, promoting UFOs. Do you have any inside scoop on information on how Steven Spielberg got hooked up with uh, with Professor Hynek? Yeah, it's, I'm glad you brought that up because it's really a fun story. So I've talked, I've mentioned a couple times tonight about um, the Kufos files, the Heineck, the Heineck UFO archives in, in the basement of uh, Dr. Mark Rodiger in Chicago. Well, as one of the first one of the first days I visited there and I started to look through the files um, to start researching the book, I opened up the file drawer with the letter S, and there were two two Manila folders in the S drawer that jumped out at me immediately. The first one said Sagan, and the second one said Spielberg. So, of course, I I grabbed those two file folders out of that file cabinet oh, wow. drawer immediately. Those were the ones I wanted to look at first. Um, and the first one I looked at was the Spielberg folder. So I flip open this folder, and there's a letter inside the folder, and it's it's a letter from Dr. Hynek written to Steven Spielberg, so he had kept a copy for his files. Um, and in this letter, Dr. Hynek was very awkwardly and embarrassingly sort of accusing Steven Spielberg of ripping him off in the most polite manner imaginable. Basically, Hynek says, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Hynek says in this letter, hey, I just found out that you're making a movie um, and the title of your movie is based on something in my new book. I really wish you had contacted me <laughs> before using my words. 
and and what he says is true. So this was nineteen, you know, probably nineteen seventy-five. I think when they had this this correspondence. Well, in nineteen seventy-two, just a couple of years earlier, Dr. Heineck had just published his first UFO book called The UFO Experience, and it was in that book that he introduced his close encounters um, categorization system for UFO sightings. So that book comes out in 72. A couple years later, Heineck finds out that Spielberg is using the term Close Encounters of the Third Kind as the title of his movie. So again, he writes this letter to Spielberg and says, you know, we should talk. Well, the next letter in that file folder was from Steven Spielberg back to Dr. Heineck. And Mr. Spielberg is also very polite, but also a little awkward. And he just says, gosh, I'm so sorry. Um, I had no idea that we were, you know, using your intellectual property. He goes, your book is really fantastic, and I make it it required reading for everybody on my creative team. They all have to read your book before they work on the movie. So (laughs) they ended up figuring it all out. They They were both adults about it, and they ended up settling the whole thing. And what ended up happening was, so Spielberg did use the title, obviously, Close Encounters of the Third Kind for the movie. Uh, He paid Dr. Hynek um, really a token amount for the rights to use that term and the rights to use the material in the book. Uh, And in exchange, uh, he hired Dr. Hynek on as a um, technical technical, um, technical consultant, rather, for the movie for three days and um, gave him a cameo role in the movie, which I think you referred to before. It's this, like, six-second scene at the climax of the movie where Heineck is actually on camera putting his pipe in his mouth. Um, So that's how it all worked out. Um, It was kind of this weird misunderstanding to begin with, um, but then it kind of turned into this, you know, pop culture icon in this really weird way. And I should probably, I probably should have, before I went into all that, explained, I know most of your audience is going to know this, but it always helps to go over it again, what the close encounters are. So a close encounter of the first kind is when you see a UFO up close, say within about 500 yards, so that's about about a quarter of a mile, close enough so that you can see detail uh, on the object. A close encounter of the second kind involves also being within 500 yards of an object, but this time this time, the object um, leaves physical traces, so it may shut off your car engine, or it may burn your eyeballs, it may give you retinal burns, or it may um, leave landing pad imprints or leave uh, you know, a scorched grass where it, where it landed and took off. So that's close encounter of the second kind. And that was actually Hynek's favorite category, because he thought CE2Ks had the greatest potential to... Um, to uh, um, involve real scientific evidence. Close encounter of the third kind, he actually wasn't very comfortable with, but he had to include it. Close encounter of the third kind involved contact with um, some sort of alien entity associated with the UFO. So those were the three types of close encounters, and that's what is now really part of our everyday language. Yeah, I, I, I think if that didn't happen... You know, I, I, I really think that's what really got 
uh, talking about UFOs, kind of a houseword name and and aliens oh, totally, and, yeah. and abductions and all that stuff. And and you know, and I, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the reasons that it had that effect was, if you think about it, that was really it. Might not have been the very first. But it was one of the first science fiction movies to ever portray aliens as being friendly. You know, they're threatening at the beginning of the movie, but eventually you kind of figure out the only reason they're scary is because we don't understand what they're trying to tell us. You know, we have to learn their language, and it's not until the end of the movie that we realize, oh, they're here as friends. They're, you know, they're not trying to hurt us or scare us. They're here to make contact with us. And I think that's one of the really, you know, that's one of the things that makes that movie so special and so memorable to so many people is because it really had, um, you know, it really had an optimistic uh, message, which was really rare in science fiction movies. What's your take on that, Michael? Well, uh, that's right, Mark. And, you know, another real interesting aspect of that film was uh, Richard Dreyfuss's part, uh, uh, Mr. Neary, where people could actually relate to that character, you know, the fact that uh, his entire life fell apart because of what he saw, and he just was, um, uh, in, it, he just had to, he could not let it go, he just had to like throw his whole family and his entire uh, career <laughs> aside to follow the, uh, this, uh, this obsession of finding out what this thing is about. Uh, that's just a fascinating story in itself. As a matter of fact, that story, for me, is probably more important than the fact that there are extraterrestrials. The fact that uh, human beings uh, can relate to someone being obsessed with trying to find out the truth. Mm, yeah, that's a really good point, yeah. You're right, and I think that's. You're, I think that probably is one of the real strengths of the movie. Is we 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 really can identify with that character, because he doesn't ask for this to happen. You know, I think he even says that in the movie. He's like, I didn't ask for this to happen. It just exactly. happened to me, and that's yeah. That's kind of a that's kind of a big thing with UFO witnesses. And there's another iconic uh, scene in the film too that kind of wraps up people's thoughts about this whole issue of uh, the government knowing what's going on. And um, and not telling us. <laughs> At one point, uh, uh, his Richard Dreyfuss's character is confused. He's being interrogated uh, by um, uh, you know the, the the French you know uh, uh, guy in the movies, which I understand is basically kind of a uh, a throw to uh, Jacques Vallée's character in in real life. <laughs> and at one point, uh, Mr. Neary says. And this guy's not even an American. <laughs> and I'm going, you know, it just goes to show you that this entire subject is much, much bigger than uh, our government, than, uh, you know, maybe France's government. And the entire world needs to be involved in figuring out what this was. That, that was iconic in, in the film as well. Well, it's definitely a movie that has moved a lot of people and inspired a lot of people and, you know, I, I I have my own I have my own Blu-ray copy of it, and I you know I pull it out and watch that movie every couple of months, and it never never loses its power. But you know, after he he even appeared in that movie, and uh, 
gave, you know, information, you know, to help make the movie. But when he appeared in it, that really changed the outlook, how people looked at him. You know, before that, they they really looked at him as a government debunker. And then, yeah, you know, a lot true. of people looked at it after he appeared in that uh, that little scene at the end as pretty much as a, um, well, a true believer and a uh, traitor with the, against the, uh, you know, the uh, government. Yeah, it, it definitely was one of those watershed moments in his career where, you know, people really started to kind of see him in a new way. He really became a superstar, and the guy was... You know, I, 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 I listed it at some point, point in my book, I, I listed all the different TV talk shows he had been in, and I only give a small sample, and it's a really long list. You know, the students at Northwestern would, would um, make a big deal about the fact that Dr. Hynek was like the most famous professor on campus because he was constantly being invited on, on talk shows and things to talk about his UFO work. So, wasn't yeah, he, the, wasn't that, that he on, moment in Close Encounters really had a big impact. Wasn't he on Dick Cabot, I think, uh, at, at one point? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And that is, that's, I go into, I tell that story in the book, and it's one, it's one of my favorite parts in the book. Um, I'll give you a quick sketch on it. Give a little bit longer. Give a little bit longer and a, a quick. A lot of people. <laughs> okay. Before you do though, a lot of people, the younger people, right. probably don't even know who uh, Dick Cabot was. Dick Cabot, you know, used to interview virtually anybody from actors to government officials. Uh, he really changed, uh, you know, talk shows, and he was really popular for many years. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And uh, I do remember seeing a replay of him being interviewed. Oh, and yeah, Dick Cavett was, was a really good interview and a really smart person and kind of a UFO hero, to be honest. And when you hear this whole story, you'll understand why. So this, this talk show um, came about in October of uh, uh, 1973, and a couple of really big things had just happened just prior to this talk show. Um, there was, and this, so this is October 1973. First of all, there was a, a world-famous UFO abduction that took place in, in Pascagoula, Mississippi, um, these two men who worked at a local shipyard were out fishing uh, on the bayou late at night, and they were approached by this glowing egg-shaped UFO that came down and, well, it didn't exactly land. It hovered a couple feet off the ground, very close to where these guys were fishing. And then a door opened in the side of this thing, and these three weird kind of robot-like creatures came floating out grabbed these two guys, brought them inside the, the UFO, examined them, and then put them back out on the pier, and the UFO disappeared. This story became a huge, huge headline news all around the United States. Well, probably all around the world. Um, huge story. 
and it was a story that just didn't die. It was headline news for days and days and days, in a in large part because these two witnesses were so believable. You know, they were they were just a couple they were just a couple of working guys. They were out fishing. They weren't looking for trouble. You know, again that whole thing about I didn't ask for this to happen to me. These guys went through this absolutely profound experience of alien contact, and they never changed their stories. Nobody ever tripped them up. They passed, they passed lie detector tests. It was an amazing story. So first that happened. Then about 10 days after that, another amazing UFO case happened in, in Ohio, and this time it was an Army helicopter with a crew of four men that were flying at night uh, across the Ohio skies, and they have a terrifying encounter with a UFO that, first of all, they have to go into a crash dive because they think they're going to have a mid-air collision. Well, the next thing they know, this UFO that, that they thought they were going to collide with, this UFO is actually pulling them back up out of their crash dive, and then it disappears. So it, it literally saves the lives of this chopper crew because they were probably going to crash because of this crash dive, and then it, and then it flies off into the night sky. Well, that case became a huge, huge national story as well. So Dick Cavett and his producers had the bright idea of, hey, let's get, these, let's get the guys from Mississippi and the guys from the helicopter on our show to talk about their experiences. So that's what they did. And, and in the end, they only got, they got one of the guys from Mississippi and they got the, the captain of the chopper crew, um, Lawrence Coyne, and brought them to um, uh, brought them to the show, and they so they did this live prime time interview with Dick Cavett, in which both of these gentlemen talked about their experiences. But here's what was super interesting about this show: um, they had a couple other guests too. They had uh, one of the NASA astronauts who had seen a UFO during a spaceflight. I can't. I'm blanking on the name right now. Hopefully it'll come to me. They also had um, a gentleman who had just written a book about the Bermuda Triangle. And they also had Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who had come along with Charles Hickson, the the abductee from Mississippi. Uh, So Dr. Hynek is on stage on the TV show. They also brought in Dr. Carl Sagan, who I'm sure we all know and love, but Dr. Sagan was not a friend of UFOs. So... um, Cavett does this very, very nice job of interviewing the UFO witnesses, letting them share their story on primetime national TV, which was a really big deal. And then Carl Sagan starts to sort of start criticizing everyone else on the TV show because he just thought UFOs were a joke. He couldn't stand that, you know, Hynek was always trying to get research money to study UFOs. Well, Sagan didn't like that because... He thought the research money should all come to him. There were all sorts of weird political things going on here. Unfortunately, so I tried to get a copy of this show to watch before I wrote my book, and the production company that owns the rights to the Dick Cavett show wrote back to me and said, oh, gosh, we're sorry, that tape got erased mysteriously several years ago. So there's no, apparently no existing copy of this show in which Carl Sagan just attacked everybody on stage. Here's what Sagan did. So the, so the chopper pilot is describing how the altimeter of the helicopter proved the, the needle of the altimeter was rising so fast, that's how they knew that this UFO was lifting the chopper up in the air. 
and Carl Sagan starts criticizing the chopper pilot, and Dr. Hynek says, well, now, wait a minute, altimeters don't hallucinate. And Dr. Sagan says, yes, but people who look at, at, people who look at altimeters hallucinate. That's pretty brutal, and that's how Sagan treated everybody on the show. So that's the whole story of the Dick Cavett show. It was a really fascinating moment in UFO history because basically the two sides, you know, the two sides staked out their position. There's the rational, the rational debunking Carl Sagan side, and then there's the open-minded, inquisitive, curious, you know, UFO researcher in Dr. Hynek, and it was it was quite a show. I really, really wish I could somehow find a copy of that show, but it's probably never going to happen. Yeah, or they they maybe have it; they just don't want to release it. Now, it may well, tell- that is the other possibility. You're absolutely right, and of course, that's what I think. I I I think they have a copy, or maybe they really did destroy it, but it wasn't by accident. Yeah, yeah, maybe it was taken away from him. But I just I know. I just wondered, didn't Carl Sagan, though, towards the end of his career, before he died, didn't he kind of uh, do an about change about life and another planet? Well, and UFOs a that's, little bit? That's, one of, that's, one, that's one of the weird things about Carl Sagan. So he was really, really anti-UFO, but he was a, but he was a huge, huge believer in um, intelligent life on other planets. So he had no problem with the idea that there were aliens out there on other planets that were far in advance of us here on Earth. He totally believed that. You know, he's one of the scientists who designed the greeting, uh, the, the greeting that went out into space on the Voyager space probes. That was Carl Sagan behind that. He was one of the founders of the search for, ex- or one of the sp- main sponsors of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So he had no problem with the idea that, that um, that advanced aliens existed somewhere in space. And he even was willing to admit that they might have visited Earth, but he had this stipulation. If they visited Earth, it had to have been like a million years ago, and there's no reason to think that they'd come back. That's really weird reasoning. I've never been able to figure that out. I would love to talk to Carl Sagan if he was still alive well, he had and some have him explain that logic. He had some weird logic, but you know, yeah. wasn't he one of the people involved at one point? You know, we've been sending out our address of this planet for what almost fifty years now. Wasn't he yeah. kind of involved in that too? And that, uh, like Hawkins, before he died, he was very seriously, you know, trying to tell the government stop giving our address out. You I don't, know. you don't know if they're going to be friendly. You know what? I tell you this right now. If I went on Craigslist and gave my address out and saying, I'm going on vacation for two weeks, and this is my <laughs> color house, this is my address, am I going to come back to anything in my house? <laughs> Very good point. Very good point. Yeah, there is definitely something, there is definitely something to be worried about there. And I, and I, I, I wish Stephen Hawking was still around to keep talking about it because we need we need to hear that argument a lot i think no just because you know we look at ourselves and i i mentioned this the other night uh just because we look at ourselves we're still barbaric uh our race our human race is very barbaric now take a race maybe i don't know how many years uh, or centuries or more advanced than us 
You know, like I mentioned to everybody, and I got a lot of email, bad email to, to me. I said, you know what? We eat everything on this earth that's below us. What would stop, you know, somebody that's so far advanced coming on our planet and looking at us as no more than we look at that uh, burger from McDonald's, you know, like uh, a cow or a deer or anything. We could be food, and we're giving out our address? No way. That's stupid. Yeah, it definitely, definitely makes you think. Yeah. I don't know how you feel, Michael. I mean, you're trying to prove that UFOs exist. Do you feel comfortable with them giving out our address where our planet is? You know, it's, I've all often thought about that, um, about the fact that uh, the I Love Lucy reruns are somewhere <laughs> out there, and someone is listening in and making a judgment call on who the heck we are by some of the old television and radio broadcasts um, that they're hearing. That is a strange idea, let alone the fact that they might uh, be hostile but they might be very curious and have a really bad impression about about us. <laughs> well, especially some of those yeah, that... TV shows were really bad. You know, we went for that series, what, of Cowboys? And then from Cowboys, we went into, uh, uh, for a while, we went into, like, war shows, like Combat and all that type of shows for a few years, The Desert Fox, all that stuff. Then they went into, what, uh, just one weird cycle after another. And depending on where they're at and our, how long it takes that signal to reach where they're at, you know, let alone listening to, like, when I was on radio, I was really funky. Uh, I think they would really get a bad impression of me and you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think they would definitely get the wrong impression, and I think we would have a lot of explaining to do if we ever met them. And I sure would hate them to uh, get that episode of The Twilight Zone called Sir- To Serve Man. That would be bad. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's that would be bad. It's a cookbook. <laughs> yeah, that's why, you know, I hate to say it. I, You know, besides Peter Davenport, uh, you have the lady uh, in Cashiers, North Carolina, uh, skycashiers.com. Uh, she, you know, takes reportings of UFOs. Like I mentioned to you, Michael, that she uh, was a seasoned reporter for large uh, newspapers and stuff like that. She yeah. insists that some of the information that people have come up and given to her you know, that we we're supposedly uh, working with a couple alien races, and one of them, she said, are cannibals. So from, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But the point is, I just don't feel comfortable with the government, you know, doing, you know, they're doing it in the name of science, and a lot of the stuff they do in yeah. science comes back and bites us right on the butt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, another another angle on that that same uh, idea of whether we should be giving gi- giving out our address literally to aliens is so even if we do decide that that it's okay to be sending signals out into space, space who gets to decide what message we're sending? You know, because I'd like to be able to contribute to that. I'd like to I'd like to know that it's not ju- just one person writing this greeting from their point of view. You know, I'd I'd like to know that there's kind of a universal human message that we might be able to send and that everybody would have a part in deciding what that message is going to be because right now we don't have that. There's like a few scientists, you know, shuttered up in their laboratories on their own kind of coming up with what these messages are going to be and I don't know if that's the right way to do it. 
I don't think so. And, you know, Michael, being an attorney out there, shouldn't they have some type of disclaimer on the, the messages they sent out? Like, basically, like, well, if you're hostile or cannibal, uh, just please disregard this, uh, you know, signal that you just received. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's uh, it's really fascinating to me, the uh, old-fashioned time capsules that they used to, uh, you know, bury and uh, for future generations to to uh, to dig up and... I often thought it was just great where they had individuals, uh, children, uh, housewives, you know, businessmen, different kind, kinds of people putting messages into those time capsules. And then when you dig them up 100 years later, you get the different point of view of the people that lived back then. And that's what I think Mark is getting at here. If we had some kind of... A, uh, message that was get, uh, getting out there that would have a well-rounded view of what humanity is, who we are, that that would tell them a lot more than maybe a few scientists trying to figure out, you know, what kind of code to send them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I hope we'll get a chance. I hope we'll get a chance to be part of that process. Or we live long enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you know, Mark, uh, before we get uh, off the air here, I wanted to make sure that the people out there realized that uh, uh, Dr. Hynek started the Close Encounters idea and uh, first, second, and third kind, but there are Close Encounters of the fourth kind, basically the idea of abduction of people. Uh, there also is the Close Encounters of the fifth kind, uh, the fact that uh, there are stories of human-initiated contact with aliens. Um, one of my uh, clients is uh, Dr. Richard Haynes, and he was the gentleman who wrote the book CE5. Uh, he was the NASA oh, okay. uh, scientist retired who uh, was in charge of the Human Factors Division of NASA in the Apollo and Mercury days. <clears throat> and um, uh, he uh, kind of made that or coined that term, the idea that there are cases out there where human beings have initiated contact with uh, either a laser, uh, a flashlight, or even, uh, remember Reverend Gill waving at the flying saucer yeah. that was hovering uh -huh. over his uh, monastery and they waved back? That kind of thing is close encounters of the fifth kind. That's that's really an interesting angle on things, and I'm glad you brought that up because it it kind of got its start after Dr. Hynek passed away in 1986. I've been really struck by this weird coincidence. So Dr. Hynek passes away in 1986, and in the very following year, uh, 1987, two books are published, Whitley Strieber's Communion and... Um, uh, oh gosh, what's the other one? Intruders. Uh, I think that's John Mack's book. But Bud Hopkins. Bud Hopkins. Yes, thank you. Bud Hopkins' book, Intruders. I believe that also came out in 1987. So one year after Dr. Hynek passes away, you've got these two really influential, really popular, best-selling books about this whole new kind of alien encounter that nobody's ever had before. All of a sudden, you've got these alien abductions where the aliens, people aren't just like encounter, encountering a UFO out on a lonely country highway, you know, or out, out fishing on a pier. All of a sudden, 
the aliens are coming into people's bedrooms and and snatching them from their beds. It's like a whole different abduction paradigm just suddenly appears in 1987, and the whole narrative changes. All of a sudden, you know, the whole the whole alien abduction um, experience becomes a very very different thing. It's more of an invasion now, where you know the witnesses wake up in the middle of the night and they see this creature standing at the foot of their bed and they feel paralyzed, they can't move, they can't talk. And in a lot of cases, then these, the being or you know, multiple beings will somehow get them out of their bedroom and somehow they're in another environment, which you know, you, I guess we just assume is a UFO, although there isn't ever an actual, um, well, there isn't always an actual UFO sighting accompanying this phenomenon. Uh, very often the very first indication that, that something's going on is, you know, these beings' presence in people's bedrooms. So for me, you know, just kind of looking at the UFO phenomenon from like the 30,000 feet um, high vantage point, trying to understand what it all means, things like that really, really grab me and really fascinate me. Why did that, why did the whole abduction experience suddenly change overnight in 1987 i think it's you know and, and i point out that that's just one short year after dr dr Heineck passed away i don't think there's any connection there but it sure is a weird coincidence maybe people too were actually starting to come out and and you know and you know telling their actual you know experiences uh th- that's my feeling uh but i don't know I've had some people on the show uh, that, uh, you know, one was the number nine, uh, well, implant uh, removed from, from Roger Lear. Oh, uh-huh. And, you know, he mm-hmm. had a good story. In fact, he's coming back on in about 10 days uh talk a little bit more about it. It just makes you wonder, you know, from people, you know, being in bed. I had a guest on. I don't know if you heard it, Michael, that one night where the guy, uh, you know, uh, saw five grays coming towards his bedroom and they kind of instructed him to put his head on the pillow and go to sleep and and he right he, yeah he was abducted but then that it was a little strange after that it seems like he would abbott a woodsman so he would go out in the woods and all of a sudden which he never had happened before owls would kind of follow him and right. uh, it, it got kind of really you know interesting every time he went out in the woods there'd be not one or two it'd be a bunch of them all through his encounter being out in the woods. My, and I asked him, I said, do you maybe think that was implanted in your head uh, when you were abducted? Maybe you were thinking of an owl or something. And they use that to, you know, kind of camouflage. Uh, when you were seeing these owls, you maybe were being abducted again. Oh, you know, yeah, I- the, owl, the owl motif and, you know, people seeing owls looking in through their bedroom windows. That's that's a part of this whole scenario that I find really, really um, kind of haunting. I think the owls are. I mean, owls are kind of scary to begin with, but but to think that they might be some sort of representation of an alien presence is really makes my skin crawl. Well, I haven't yeah, seen but- one, so I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, Mark is also. Uh, correct when he says that uh, in 1987 or so where, where when Whitley Strieber's book came out and the picture of an alien was on the front cover of that book uh, oh, talk yeah. about owls 
and talk about scary uh, images, that was basically the first time in um, in uh, the iconic you know uh, genre that uh, that figure, that face, was kind of like out in the public. After that, after that, I understand that Whitley Strieber was inundated by millions of letters. Uh, that came into him saying that they have seen that face somewhere before. Oh. Matter of fact, uh, he has an entire book written on just the letters that he got uh, from from that book. That doesn't surprise me. I, it doesn't surprise me at all that that book would have unleashed that kind of avalanche of people writing him letters. Because you know, going back to what I what I was saying before about you know what motivates someone to report a UFO. A lot of times it, they just want to know, did, has anybody else ever seen the same thing? I, and I think that's kind of what, what you're talking about there, the same phenomenon. People probably, a lot of people, I bet, read that book and just thought, oh, my gosh, this guy knows what I've been going through. I need to contact him. So, yeah, that doesn't surprise me a bit that he got inundated with letters. Yeah. Because, like I said before, I just think I think these experiences – um, whether they're you know just the, the kind of old school UFO experience or this more modern um, type of abduction experience, you know these are really profound experiences that are very real to the to the you know the, the person who's involved in them. Um, and and yeah, the, the the image of that alien from the cover of Communion. Just think about what that image, that face. Is like universally recognized. I mean, I have a I have an emoji on my phone with that alien face on it. You know, wow, it's crazy that that image, that face, is like stamped into all of our consciousness now. Well, you know what I was trying to get at too. A lot of the people have been abducted, like uh, Timothy. You know, he was number nine uh, removal implant. About a year later, after he had Roger, you know, remove that implant. Him and his wife are going into town, and this about the same mountain, you know, the side of a mountain where he had his first encounter with a UFO and was abducted. He saw another UFO, and they stopped and looked at it, and his wife goes, no, let's go to town, and he left. But then again, too, you know, he could have been abducted and, and not realize it, just like the first time. Yeah, I, I I have a friend um, who lives not far from here who um, he has had a lifetime. You know, he he's he's one of that select few people who is who has had a lifetime of abduction experiences going back to. Gosh, I think I don't want to say the wrong thing, but I'm pretty sure he told me that it started around age ten. Um, you know, just sort of lying out in his backyard, and all of a sudden there was a presence somewhere that he felt. And, you know, that was the first of many times he was abducted and, you know, and examined. Um, so, yeah, those are, those are such, such amazing stories and such profound experiences for the people who go through them. And, and when you actually know someone who can tell you firsthand about the experience, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty profound. That's the only word I can think of. Well, I, I, but I, I'm kind of concerned about you, Michael. You're going out trying to, you know, get proof of UFOs. You're kind of going out in remote areas and stuff like that to try filming them and taking pictures. And 
uh, aren't you ever scared that it, you might actually run into one close up or something like that? What would you actually do, Michael? <laughs> you know, funny you should mention that, Gary, is that we have a couple, uh, well, we have about 12 members of the UFO I team, but we have a few intuitives in our group who literally uh, get physical reactions, they say, when there is something close at hand that we are going to uh, uncover or uh, witness. Uh, and we can go out pretty much uh, uh, any night of the week with our sophistic gear. We've got the you know, night vision uh, cameras, we've got the infrared, and we've got stop-action photography. And we can pretty much guarantee we're going to find something anomalous in the sky. But um, Lee Strauss, one of our uh, cameramen, uh, says that when he gets uh, a premonition that uh, a sighting is about ready to be recorded on our gear, he gets what he calls the heebie-jeebies, something that uh, he tells him that something is afoot. So at least I know I've got a couple people in our group that will be able to give us some warning ahead of time. Well, I, <laughs> something I'm, like that. I mean, I'm going to ask you a real dumb question. What happens if one is like, a hundred feet above your head or decides to land out in that field in that farm. I mean, you know, you're out looking for it. And sometimes when you go out looking for it, you find things you don't want to find. So I'm just kind of curious, what would you do? I know myself, I'm a coward, you know, I don't mind looking at them, you know, with a pair of infrared binoculars or a telescope. That's one thing, but you know, to actually, you know, have one getting really close. I mean, ever since I had that experience in that desert, you know, where we were driving and all of a sudden it looked like daylight all around the car and it lit up inside the car when it was pitch black. And then I pulled right. over thinking I maybe it was a helicopter, you know, a, a highway patrol or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm in trouble. Because, you know, I think the speed limit was around 100 or something like that, crazy at that time frame. And when I pulled out there and got out of the car, it was really bright for a split second or two seconds or three. I don't know how the time was. But I'll tell you, it hurt my eyes. It was bright, but then it was instantly gone. And I was telling Peter Davenport about that, and he said he's got a lot of reports of the same type of situation. And I'll tell you, that whole night in the car, driving, you know, heading towards Seattle, I, you know, I was really scared. And, and my wife at the time, Julie, was sitting there, you know, looking at the sky steady all the way home, not wanting to, you know, the first thing in our mind is it was a UFO. You know, is that, but you know, you can take a, yeah. you know, you're in the car and after you have that, that type of situation, it made, it makes you nervous. At least it did me. And I think it would a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, you yeah. know, in my time, in my time, uh, as a, as a MUFON investigator, I've heard several stories that have real strong similarities to what you're de describing just in terms of, you know, the unusual light that seems to appear out of nowhere and it like, it turns on and off, like, so quickly, like it's not even real. I'm not even really describing it very well. But I've heard things similar to what you're describing before. Yeah, and I've never seen anything like that afterwards. And, you know, I've been interested in the par Well, that's one of the things that actually really started my paranormal thing was pretty much that. And then after that, I ran in a couple other things in my life that I wish I wouldn't have. But, I mean, I, I really, you know, strongly believe that we're being visited. And I, I don't know. It's just how some people look at it. You know, at least you can say it now. And most people won't look at you like a crackpot. 
I won't right. say. That. I still big. say if you talk about Bigfoot, you kind of get looked at strange. But I mean, UFOs. It's so much of it, and I'm, in so many reports, like in Brazil, I was listening to an old Art Bell show uh, uh, a couple months ago, where a South ex South African general, uh, you know, responded uh, with his helicopter special forces uh, group to a crash UFO, and. Uh, he explained that uh, the U.S. government, you know, they weren't allowed to do anything. They tried They tried cutting it open at one point, he said. And then he got direct orders above not to do anything. And all of a sudden, you know, American Americans arrived and they removed the UFO. And then all of a sudden, he was no longer a general and he was no longer in the uh, military of South Africa. Whoa. But, I mean, that was interesting, Whoa. you know, and... I did check it out on the, you know, the web and, it, you know, it was a legitimate uh, general by that name and all that stuff. So, I mean, I don't know. There, and, you know, if you go like in Brazil or if you go into uh, a lot of countries like Russia, they announce when they see UFOs. They tell the, they tell the public, you know, uh, there's uh-huh. UFOs and we, they're the sightings. They don't sit there and say, oh, it's fake. Yeah. Well, a lot of people are more enlightened than we are. What can you say? I wanted, I wanted to just quickly tell a story that related to something that, that came up just a couple of minutes ago. We were talking about, um, Michael, you were talking about the folks in your, in your group who have these intuitions or, or sort of premonitions of, of, you know, that something might happen. Is, that a, is yeah. that a fair way to describe it? Yeah, exactly. We've got... Uh We've got at least one mystic. We've got uh, a couple of intuitives, and uh, we have a uh, certified hypnotherapist as well that uh, oh. kind of gives us those feedbacks. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, it reminded me of one of the last cases that I investigated for MUFON. Um, it was a young couple. They had seen something in broad daylight that kind of terrified them, and they they were uh, just an ob- you know a bright object in the sky. They reported it to MUFON. Um, they they lived close to, enough to me that I was actually able to go meet with them at their house and interview them in person. You can't always do that because of distance. Um, so I met with this couple, and they you know they described everything they saw, and I had to tell them you know what I think what you saw was a sun dog. The weather conditions that day were such that it that's they may very well have been what you saw. Um, and they were very accepting of that. And they were like, oh, you know, it's kind of disappointing. We thought it was something more than that. But, you know, they, they were, you know, I was able to explain my reasoning to them, and they, were, they, they accepted that. And they thought, well, yeah, that, that's, that's, that certainly makes sense. So, um, so that case was just kind of, you know, didn't really go anywhere. But a day or two later, um, the woman from this couple emailed me, And she said, you know, ever since we talked to you about uh, that sighting we thought we had, she said, I've been having memories of these weird dreams I had as a kid. And I think, you know, could you, um, you know, could we do an interview sometime so I can tell you about these experiences? So a couple days later, um, I got together with her and she was telling me this. It, it's, it's a long story. I can't go into it now, I don't think. But she had some a history of childhood nightmares um, that involved some sorts of alien beings. And her and her entire kindergarten class 
being sort of um, sort of marked or identified in in strange ways. They were really really creepy, scary stories. But after hearing these stories, you know, we both kind of commented on it's kind of interesting that their she and her husband's first sighting that actually didn't amount to anything actually triggered these memories in her and it was kind of this weird situation where it seemed like the reason that she and her husband reported that sundog was so that she could remember these dreams she had when she was younger you know do you yeah. follow what i'm saying it was just kind of this weird weird cause and effect thing where like they had to see that that you know the 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 UFO report that didn't amount to anything in order to make contact with me so that this woman could share her story with me. It was it was a really interesting situation, and what made it even weirder was that I've talked with other UFO witnesses, actually young women about the same age, who've had really similar experiences and dreams. So that was one that I'm still scratching my head over a lot. Well, how many yeah. how many reports did you get? Like women claiming that they were abducted, sexually assaulted by you know their uh, alien I, abduct- I, I never came across I never came across anywhere there was um, sexual assault involved. Um, but I would say, boy, I mean, I never kept count or anything. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it was a fifty fifty split between men and women. But at least, I'm going to say at least 40% of the witnesses that I interviewed were, were women. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's a universal experience. And that, actually, that reminds me of something I wanted to comment on before, when you, you were talking uh, before about the, um, the person from South America, uh, you know, and how this is a, a global phenomenon. That was another thing that Heineck always made a point of mentioning when he, when he was talking about how believable this all is. Heineck would say, look, people from all over the world are reporting seeing things in the sky, right? Why is it that all these people, no matter where they live in the world, they're all reporting the same things in the sky? They're always saucer-shaped or cigar-shaped or orb-shaped. Why aren't there squares and cubes and triangles? Well, now there are triangles, of course, but... Back when Heineck was, you know, involved in in this, um, I don't think triangles really existed. That that's really a fairly modern phenomenon in ufology. But Heineck's point, I think, was a pretty strong point. How is it that all these people all over the world are seeing basically the same things in the sky? Wouldn't you expect it to be a huge, wide variety of different things that people are seeing? And yet, it's always the same basic shapes. I, I find things like that very, very well, I find if you go back to prehistoric dates and you look in the caves and then you start seeing drawings, right, of of uh, a man with a helmet on uh, riding on some type of oh, thing, yeah. you know, in the sky, you know, it, it tells me, hey, we probably were visited. They seen it and they that's how they recorded it. So, I mean, it, 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 you just can't say, oh, this is started in the 40s and or the 30s. This has been yeah. going on for, you know. As long as man has been here, yeah, it's it's very deep seated. I don't think anybody can deny that it's very very deep seated, and I don't think it'll ever go away. The problem is, will we ever understand it? You know, that's where I'm at now. After all this time, you know, writing my blog and writing my book and you know doing doing my 
years as a as an investigator for MUFON, you know, I always end up. I'm I'm not I'm not sure if we can ever understand what they are, but I've gotten so interested in trying to understand what they mean, and I think we might have a better chance of figuring that out what they mean uh, over over what they are. I don't know if we'll ever really understand what they are, but I think what they mean to all of us is something to really think about. That kind of that that's kind of where my head goes. You know, is this phenomenon preparing us for something? Is it like, is it expanding our consciousness in some way that we don't even understand? And those are, those are some of the concepts that Dr. Hynek played with later in his life too. You know, when, in the in the later years of his of his career, and you know, and he studied UFOs right up until his dying day. You know, he he never retired from the UFO business at all. But but towards the end of his his life, um, his thinking was more and more about. Um, parallel dimensions. He was wondering, well, what if these things don't come from another planet? What if they're from right here? What if they're from a parallel dimension right next to ours right now? You know, maybe they're a lot closer than we think they are. That is a very and good possibility, too. I know. And so instead of um, so instead of referring to extraterrestrials, he would refer to I think he called them meta metaterrestrials, <laughs> which is a great word. And should probably be used more often. I should try to use that word more often. Metaterrestrials is what he is what he thought of them. Now I, we only got about three minutes uh, left. I would like to have you come back on, maybe in about another month, and we can you know get into it a little bit more. Or even maybe Michael uh-huh. would you know maybe like to have you on his uh, uh, Sunday show uh, talking about it. I mean, I I love. Honestly, when I get somebody in, it, it, it knows a lot about, you know, the, the subject, especially since you also did a lot of investigating. I mean, there's got to be some interesting stories, a lot of them. Um, yeah, I, I think I, Mark I and I could go on for hours. I would love to have him on my show. I'd, I'd love to. Whichever show you guys, I mean, you guys flip a coin, I don't care. I'll be happy to talk with either one of you anytime. Like I told you at the beginning, you get me started talking about this. It's hard to shut me up. Well, how can people uh, find your book and, uh, you know, uh, give us that information? And are you working on a sequel to, uh, to that book? Um, no, I'm not working on a sequel, actually. I have a, I have some other projects that have been taking up my time, and I can't really talk about them, unfortunately. Um, but I do, in the back... In the back of my mind, I do think it would be fun to do a follow-up book to this one. I'm just not totally sure what it would be. But for for the book that I do have out now, it's called The Close Encounters Man, How One Man Made the World Believe in UFOs. And you can get it, of course, on Amazon. You can pick it up. You can probably find it at Target. You can find it at you know Barnes & Noble, any of the chain bookstores. And, the, and, and most likely you can find it at any local independent bookstore as well. Uh, and I also write a blog, again, called uh, High Strangeness, and that can be found at highstrangenessufo.com. So, and I would love to have more readers. Well, hopefully you will after tonight. <laughs> I hope hey, so. Michael, we got about 30 seconds. Anything you, you want to ask them really quick? Well, I can't wait to get him on the show again and ask him about Dr. Hynek's um, investigation of the Lonnie Zamora matter. That is going to be a Oh, yes, we didn't story. even get to that. That's a good case. Oh, wow. See, that, that's yeah, why... I'd love to talk about that. Now, see, that's why we need to have him back on, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. All right, let's do it. Okay, sir, I'll send you an email tomorrow, and uh, 
you know, I'll let you flip the coin. You can either go with uh, the big guy or me, the other big guy, and uh, be on either one of our shows or, you know, whatever you want to do. I, I just think it, the subject needs to be addressed a little bit more than we managed to do in two hours here tonight. Well, I agree, and I will, yeah, I will gladly take you up on the invitation. I would love to come back, whichever show it's on. Okay, sir. Well, you have a, a great weekend, and uh, Thank you know, you too. yeah, and uh, hopefully you shared us on your media. If not, if you would, that'd be really cool. Because just like you, you want people reading your book. We want people to listen to Night Dreams Talk Radio. Yes, yes, please. When you email me tomorrow, send me the link, and I will get it out. Okay, sir. You have a great weekend. All right. All right. Great. Have a nice night, both of you guys. Good talking to you. Yeah, Bye, Mark. Hey, Michael. Bye. Uh, I, I really think, you know, down the road after you have your couple special guests on, uh, he, he would be an awesome guest for you. Oh, that would yeah, definitely be uh, something I'd look forward to there. He, he's very eloquent, uh, and being a MUFON investigator himself for many, many years, you know, obviously he's got that investigator's mindset as well, and I kind of like being able to talk with folks that have uh, details like that, so you're right. Oh, yeah. And you know what's nice about it is maybe he can share some of those, you know, uh, stories from some of his investigations. I, I mean, there's so many out there. It's so rich uh, with, you know, sightings of UFOs and aliens and stuff like that, which we didn't even really get into tonight. And that's the cool part, I think. Yeah. No, he, de- he definitely has the depth uh, to talk a lot more than two hours, you could tell. Oh, yeah. Well, Michael, uh, your show is going to be on uh, this uh, uh, Sunday from 7 to 8. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, and the name of your one guest, which I, you can't tell the other one because it's a mystery, but the one guest, you can yeah. say who who is who are they? Yeah, uh, Maureen Morgan is going to be on the show. She is the Washington State uh, uh, State Director for the Mutual UFO Network. And Maureen is a very fascinating character, she uh, is a world traveler, literally circumnavigated the world in a small uh, sailing ship. But she also is a historian and has something to say about some of these uh, uh, alien artwork that is uh, in artifacts that have been discovered all around the world. So I'm really looking forward to uh, spending an hour with Maureen. And of course, you've got, you're right, there's a special surprise i think we have cooked up for our audience as well oh well i can't wait to listen i mean it's always surprised when i listen to what you you put up on you know facebook live and stuff so hey i'm glad we connected i think you're going to make a great host uh, for night dreams talk radio and i probably will be hearing from you tomorrow and uh, i can't wait to host your show or not host it board up uh, your show on sunday yes yes i'm looking forward to it gary Okay. One thing I want to tell everybody out here before I sign off, uh, make sure you listen to us, uh, Night Dreams Talk Radio. You'll find us on iTunes, TuneIn's, iHeartRadio, uh, TuneIn, I already said that, and also www.nightdreamstalkradio.com. Also, you can go onto our website, then you can also select iHeartRadio, and I think uh, tune in off of that and listen to our shows. Uh, one thing that's very important, when you go on to the other apps, which we're on a heck of a lot of apps out there, make sure you click like. That's very important. Another thing I would like you to do 
is on our Facebook. Uh, we got uh, Night Dreams Talk Radio, the the chat page. We also got Night Dreams Talk Radio uh, the, for the main show, and you got mine. Uh, if you just can, you know, like uh, click like on it, and also share us uh, on the media. I mean, we we're trying to do something a little bit different than a lot of the talk shows out there. We are trying to keep it more real, a little bit more low key, and I think a better guest. And uh, we're not trying to give you a lot of hype. We're just trying to give you good entertainment uh, in UFOs, black-eyed children, uh, Bigfoot, and things that, you know, go bump in the night. So, Michael, you have a a great evening. You too, Gary. Thank you for, for a great show tonight. This was fascinating. Oh, yeah, it sure is. So, everybody, you have a good evening, and uh, I'll be back on Monday from uh, 8 to uh, 11. I hate to say it, another UFO person. I actually got the next couple weeks up, at least three nights a week, we're going to be talking UFOs. So, with that in mind, guys, you have a great weekend. Uh, Also, Kevin will be on. Uh, that's our other uh, weekend host. He's on Saturdays and Sundays uh, from 8 10 to 10 p.m. Pacific West Coast time. So make sure you take a listen to Kevin. There once was a man who had some land in eastern Washington. And on his land, this man he had a deep dark hole upon people came from miles around to throw their trash down in to see how deep the hole was and listen for its end then one day that fateful day they forced Mel off his land they paid him off and sent down under with a plan They hid Mel's hole and covered it up So ne'er it could be found So no one would ever know What's deep down in Mel's ground Check out Night Dreams website at www.nightdreamstalkradio.com You're listening to Night Dreams Radio with Gary Anderson.